Chapter 9 of Feminism in Greek Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Lorenowicz. Feminism in Greek Literature by Frederick Adam Wright. Chapter 9 The Socratic Circle. Sophocles is almost the last representative of the earlier and happier period of the Athenian Empire, their golden age as it seemed later, when to the complacent imagination of the male citizen all things seemed to be working together in the direction of progress and freedom. Progress indeed there was, and for men freedom of thought, for the intellectual atmosphere of Athens in the middle of the 5th century BC with its combination of clear knowledge and bracing speculation, has never been surpassed. But as a society, Athens already contained within herself the seeds of decay and destruction. The wealth of her intellectual achievement barely concealed the poverty of her social morality, and it was only by dint of firmly closing their eyes to the degradation of their women and the misery of their slaves that the Athenians maintained for a time the fond illusion that everything was for the best in the best of all possible cities. Then came the shock of the Peloponnesian War and the inherent weakness of a free state which refuses political freedom to more than half of its population were cruelly revealed. For nearly thirty years, with some few breathing spaces, the struggle went on, while Athens tried to force a culture intellectually superior but morally inferior to that of many other of the Greek peoples upon a reluctant world and in the end she failed and fell. After the 5th century, the political importance of Athens disappears. Her intellectual preeminence is saved for her by a small group of men who, under the hard teaching of war, discerned the flaws of her social system and set themselves resolutely to the task of criticism and reform. The nobility of war, the nobility of birth, the nobility of sex. These are some of the prejudged questions that the Socratic circle ventured to dispute, and their contentions, as we have them recorded in literature, of the late 5th and the early 4th centuries, form perhaps the most valuable legacy that the Greek mind has left us. But like so much of Greek thought, their ideas require interpretation for a modern reader. Some of the greatest of the circle, Socrates and Antisthenes, for example, we only know in the writings of other men, and we have to disentangle the matter's ideas from those of his disciples. Plato and Xenophon were drawn away by metaphysics and soldiering, and social problems form only part of their interests. Euripides and Aristophanes were compelled to conform to the conventions of Attic tragedy and comedy, and we must always discount the influence of the stage. Euripides is often less and Aristophanes more serious than suits our ideas of a tragic and a comic writer. Lastly, for all the group except Xenophon, irony was the favorite weapon of attack, an irony so deftly veiled that it made the bitterest criticism possible and still often passes undetected but even so the critics were not popular and the reforms were not accepted socrates was put to death plato found a shelter in political obscurity euripides like aeschylus passed much of his life away from athens xenophon took up his home in the peloponnese in their lives they fought against a stubborn majority, and when they were dead the social organization of Athenian life remained apparently unchanged. But their teaching lived on after them, and on feminist questions it derives almost an additional value from the general hostility of their fellow countrymen. In their criticism of the problems that we call feminism, Euripides and Socrates were the initiative forces, 
and a close study of the former's plays is indispensable for anyone who wishes to understand the position of women in athenian life but the plays of euripides throw also a certain light on the position of socrates himself socrates and euripides we know were close friends which of the two gathered the sticks and which made the faggot so runs the ancient saying no man can tell and in many points of family relationship they had the same experience euripides's mother cleto the greengrocer socrates's wife xanthippe the scold are two of the rare women in athenian history of whom we know even the names both men were lovers of women in the nobler sense and the later misogynists revenged themselves by enlarging upon their marital infelicities in the case of euripides there is no real evidence to support these scandals and even if xanthippe was a woman of strong temper both men were well enough satisfied with the married state to take another wife in addition to their first helpmate when a special law rendered necessary by the waste of male lives in the great war gave formal sanction to such a step both alike agreed in condemning the misogyny of their day and knew that a man who habitually thinks ill of women has probably no very good reason to think well of himself both applied to women as well as to men the great doctrines of liberty equality fraternity euripides saw in women the equal and not the slave of man socrates regarded her as his natural friend and not his natural enemy in xenophon's socratic books the memorabilia the economicus and the symposium we get the best record of the master's view of the women for socrates was himself too cautious ever to commit himself to the written word and perhaps the most characteristic of the episodes is the visit to the fair hetera the one faithful of all the lovers of alcibiades described in the memorabilia there lived in athens a fair lady called theodote whose habit it was to give her society to any one who could woo and win her one of the company made mention of her to socrates remarking that the lady's beauty quite surpassed description painters said he go to her house to paint her portrait and she displays to them all her perfection well said socrates manifestly we too must go and see her it is impossible for mere hearsay to realize something which surpasses description thereupon his informant quick then and follow me so off they went at once to theodote and found her at home posing to a painter when the painter had finished friends said socrates ought we to be more grateful to theodote for displaying to us her beauty or she to us for having come to see her i suppose if this display is going to be more advantageous to her she ought to be grateful to us but if it is we who are going to make a profit from the sight then we ought to be grateful to her very fairly put said one and socrates resumed the lady is profiting this moment by the praise she receives from us and when we spread the tale abroad she will gain a further advantage but as for ourselves we are beginning to have a desire to touch what we have just now seen when we are going away we shall feel smart and after we have gone we shall still long for her so we may reasonably say that it is we who are the servitors and that she accepts our service thereupon theodote well if that is so it would be only proper for me to thank you for coming to see me afterwards socrates noticed that the lady herself was expensively arrayed and that her mother's dress for her mother was in the room and general appearance was by no means humble there were a number of comely maidens also in attendance showing little signs of neglect in their attire and in all respects the household was luxuriously arranged tell me theodote said he have you any land of your own 
i have not she replied well then i suppose your household brings you in a good income no i have not a house have you a factory then no not a factory either how then do you get what you need when i find a friend and he is kind enough to help me then my livelihood is assured by our lady that is a fine thing to have a flock of friends is far better than a flock of sheep or goats or oxen but do you leave it to chance whether friends are to wing their way towards you like flies or do you use some mechanical device well how could i find any device in this matter surely it would be much more appropriate for you than for spiders you know how they hunt for their living they weave gossamer webs i believe and anything that comes their way they take for food do you advise me then to weave a hunting net no no you must not suppose that it is such a simple matter to catch that noble animal a lover have you not noticed that even to catch such a humble thing as a hare people use many devices knowing that hares are night-feeders they provide themselves with night-dogs and use them in the chase furthermore as the creatures run off at daybreak they get other dogs to scent them out and find which way they go from their feeding-ground to their forms again they are swift-footed so that they can get away in an open race and a third class of dogs is provided to catch them in their tracks lastly inasmuch as some escape even from the dogs men set nets in their runs so that they might fall into the meshes and be caught but what sort of contrivance should i use in hunting for lovers a man of course to take the place of the dog someone able to track out and discover wealthy amateurs for you able also to find ways of getting them into your nets nets forsooth what sort of nets have i one you have certainly close enfolding and well constructed your body and within your body there is your heart which teaches you the looks that charm and the words that please it tells you to welcome true friends with a smile and to lock out overbearing gallants when your beloved is sick to tend him with anxious care when he is prospering to share his joy in fine to surrender all your soul to a devout lover i am sure you know full well how to love love needs a tender heart as well as soft arms i am sure too that you convince your lovers of your affection not by mere phrases but by acts of love nay nay i do not use any artificial devices well it makes a great difference if you approach a man in the natural and proper way you will not catch or keep a lover by force he is a creature who can only be captured and kept constant by kindness and pleasure that is true you should only ask then of your well-wishers such services as will cost them little to render and you should requite them with favours of the same sort thereby you will secure their fervent and constant love and they will be your benefactors indeed you will charm them most if you never surrender except when they are sharp set you have noticed that the daintiest fare if served before a man wants it is apt to seem insipid while if he is already sated it even produces a feeling of nausea create a feeling of hunger before you serve your banquet then even humble food will appear sweet how can i create this hunger in my friends first never serve them when they are sated never suggested even wait until the feeling of repletion has quite disappeared and they begin again to be sharp-set even then at first let your suggestions be only of the most modest conversations seem not to wish to yield fly from them and fly again until they feel the pinch of hunger that is your moment the gift is the same as when a man desired it not but wondrous different now its value theodote 
why do you not join me in the hunt and help me to catch lovers i will certainly said he if you can persuade me to come nay how can i do that you must look yourself and find a way if you want me come to my house then often then socrates jesting at his own indifference to business replied it is no easy matter for me to take a holiday i am always kept busy by my private and public work moreover i have my lady friends who will never let me leave them night or day they would always be having me teach them love charms and incantations what do you know that too why what else is the reason think you that apollodorus and antisthenes never leave my side why have cebes and simias come all the way from thebes to stay with me you may be quite sure that not without love charms and incantations and magic wheels may this be brought about lend me your wheel then that i may use it on you nay i do not want to be drawn to you i want you to come to me well i will come but be sure and be at home i will be at home to you unless there be some lady with me who is dearer even than yourself it is a significant incident charmingly related by xenophon but not altogether charming in itself although the humorous irony of socrates may hide from careless readers all the darker sides of the picture but socrates himself is entirely lovable there is nothing furtive nothing patronizing in the philosopher's attitude he behaves to theodote as he would behave to everyone he admires her beauty and like goldsmith recognizes that a beautiful woman is the benefactress to mankind but while he knows the strength of her position he realizes its weakness also and there is a shade of pity in his admiration a similar appreciation of women is shown in many passages of the symposium for example when socrates says women need no perfume they are compounds themselves of fragrance there is that socratic paradox also after the dancing girl's performance this is one proof among very many that woman's nature is in no way inferior to man's she has no lack either of judgment or physical strength he continues his argument by advising his friends to teach their wives and he deals with the weakest point of woman's life the ignorance in which they were kept do not be afraid he says teach her all that you would wish your companion to know thereupon anthisthenes puts the pertinent question if that is your idea socrates why do you not try and train xanthippe who is i believe the most difficult of all wives present past and future to this he gets the following reply i have noticed said socrates that people who wish to become good horsemen get a spirited horse not a tame docile animal they think that if they can manage a fiery steed they will find no difficulty with an ordinary horse my case is the same i wanted to be a citizen of the world and to mix with all men so i took her i am quite sure that if i can endure her i shall find no difficulty in ordinary company thus socrates draws benefit even from a shrewish wife his ideas of a happy marriage and the best means of securing that happiness are set out for us by xenophon in the economicus ischomachus socrates's interlocutor is for all practical purposes xenophon himself and the whole passage should be compared with those delightful stories of conjugal happiness the tale of panthea and the wife of tigranes which the historian gives us in the education of cyrus the dialogue begins by socrates asking ischomachus how he won his sobriquet of honest gentleman surely not by staying at home no replies ischomachus i do not spend my days indoors 
My wife is quite capable of managing our household without my help. Ah, that is what I want to know. Did you train your wife yourself to be all that a wife should be? Or when you took her from her parents, did she possess enough knowledge to perform her share of house management? Possess knowledge when I took her? Why, she was not fifteen years old, and until then she had lived under careful surveillance, to see and hear and ask as little as possible. All that she knew was how to take wool and turn it into a dress. All that she had seen was how the spinning women have their daily tasks assigned. As regards control of appetite, she had certainly received a sound education, and that, I think, is all important. Iscamachus then proceeds to detail his system of education. It begins with husband and wife offering sacrifice together and praying that fortune may aid in teaching and learning what is best for both. Then, as soon as the wife is tamed to the hand and not too frightened to take part in conversation, the husband explains that they are now partners together, at present in the house, in future in any children that may be born to them. They have each contributed a portion to the common stock, and must now work together in protecting their joint interests. The wife agrees to this, but doubts her own capacity. Everything depends on you, she says. My business, mother said, was to be modest and temperate. The husband then explains the true functions of man and woman and their points of difference. Man has a greater capacity than woman for enduring heat and cold, wayfaring, and route marching. God meant for him outdoor work. Woman has less capacity for bearing fatigue. She is more affectionate, more timorous. God has imposed upon her the indoor work. Finally, to men and women alike in equal measure, God gives memory, carefulness, and self-control. Custom agrees with the divine ordinance. For a woman to stay quiet at home, instead of roaming abroad, is no disgrace. For a man to remain indoors is discreditable. The wife is like the queen bee, on whom all the work of the hive depends, and a good mistress soon wins the loyal love of all her servants. So the conversation proceeds, and with this beautiful sentence the first conjugal lesson ends. But your sweetest joy will be to show yourself my superior, and to make me your servant. Then you need not fear that as the years roll on you will lose your place of honor in the house. You will be sure that, though you are no longer young, your honor will increase, even as you become a better partner to myself and the children, and a better guardian of the home. For it is not beauty, but virtue, that nurtures the growth of a good name. But Iscamachus does not confine his teaching to words. He explains to Socrates how once he asked his wife for some household article which she could not find and how deeply she blushed at her heedless ignorance. So he gives her a practical lesson in household management by taking her over the house and explaining the uses of the various rooms and different utensils, expatiating the while on the beauty of order, for a beauty like the cadence of sweet music dwells even in pots and pans set out in neat array. His wife profits by the lesson, and henceforth everything is in its proper place. He deals faithfully, too, with that most pardonable of women's weakness, the desire to please, that leads some ladies to attempt to improve upon nature. So when one day he finds his wife with powder and rouge upon her cheeks, and wearing high-heeled shoes, he begins like this. Dear wife, would you think me a good partner in our business? If I were to make a display of unreal wealth, false money and sham purples, wood-coated with gold? Nay, surely not, she replies. And as regards my body, would you hold me as more lovable if I were to anoint myself with pigments and paint my eyes? Nay, I would rather look into your eyes and see them bright with health. 
believe me then dear wife i am not better pleased with this white powder and red paint than i should be with your natural hue so after that day the young wife gives up cosmetics and on her husband's advice takes healthy exercise instead the physical training he recommends being to knead the dough and roll the paste to shake the coverlets and make the beds with one last anecdote we must end socrates asks his friend whether beside his practical wisdom he has any rhetorical and judicial skill of course i have says ischomachus i am always hearing and debating cases in my own household yes and before to-day i have been taken on one side and have had to stand my trial and see what punishment i should bear and what fine i should pay and how do you get on said socrates when i have the advantage of truth on my side well enough but when i have not truth with me i can never make the worse cause appear the better and how is that who is the judge my wife ischomachus's home at least is no doll's house his wife is as far removed from the humble drudge with whom the ordinary athenian was familiar as she is from the painted odalisque who to the ionian was the ideal of the perfect woman End of chapter 9